Welcome to another edition of the Banyan Books podcast. My name is Ross McKeechee, and today I'm really excited to be in conversation with New York Times bestselling author Anita Morjani. Anita, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Ross. It's a pleasure to be here. Before I get into your formal introduction, I'll just make a few Banyan related announcements. First off, We like to acknowledge always, even though we have people joining us from around the world, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound is on the traditional unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples. So that includes the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations. It's Banyan Books 50th year as an independent bookstore, Canada's leading spiritual and healing resource since 1970. So everybody, I encourage you to support your local independent bookstores and to purchase Anita's books or any other products, you can visit our website, banyan.com. That's B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. Now, Anita Morjani, she was born in Singapore of Indian parents. Later in life, she lived and worked in Hong Kong with her husband, Danny. Things changed at age 42. Anita was diagnosed with lymphatic cancer or lymphoma. And after a four year struggle, her body taken by many tumors, she went into a coma and had a near death experience. She was given the choice to stay in the other realm or to return to her body and live her life from the truth of love and to be fearlessly who she is. She chose to return of course, and within weeks, there is no trace of cancer in her body. Through a series of synchronous events, Anita met the late Wayne Dyer, who helped her bring her story of love, truth, and empowerment to the world in 2011. Since then, she has been touring the world as a speaker and has been featured across many programs, including the Dr. Oz Show, Fox News, and the National Geographic Channel special feature, Life After Life. The UK's prestigious Watkins Mind Body Spirit magazine has listed Mrs. Morjani as one of the top 100 of the world's most spiritually influential living people for the eighth consecutive year. Wonderful. And Anita is the author of three books. The first one, the New York Times bestseller about her near-death experience, which has sold over a million copies worldwide, more than 45 languages, is called Dying to Be Me. Her second book was called, What If This Is Heaven? And her newest book, which came out March this year, 2021, is called, Sensitive is the New Strong, The Power of Empaths in an Increasingly Harsh World. A really wonderful book. And Marianne Williamson said of this book, the key to the survival of the human race does not lie in our becoming more ruthless. It lies in our ability for kindness, empathy, wisdom, and collaboration. Morjani gives the why and the how of the new meaning of strong. She's here today talking with us about her new book. Everyone join me in welcoming Anita Morjani. Thank you. Anita, thank you. Uh, 
Thank you for that beautiful introduction. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm excited to have you here. And um, I've, I've been aware of your work since your first book came out. I, I was quite a fan of Wayne Dyer and, um, and uh, found out about your work through him when it first came out. Um, now, you, you didn't always know you were an empath. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't even know that there was such a thing as being an empath until just uh, several years ago. So I was navigating the world as an empath without realizing that I'm an empath or there even is such a thing as being an empath and let alone understanding what it meant to be one. And I just assumed that everybody thinks and feels and senses emotions the same way I do and would get frustrated when either people didn't understand me or when other people didn't feel emotions the, or sensitivity the way I did. <laughs> and, and you had this experience in Costa Rica with this, this shaman. This is, this is after your near-death experience. You already have written um, books and, and you have this experience with this shaman in Costa Rica. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, of course. So, so basically, you know, uh, I've had, uh, I, I had, went through having cancer, went through the near-death experience, went through being completely healed, and um, Wayne Dyer discovers my story. I have two books published, and then I'm out in the world sharing my story and wanting to help everybody that comes to me who, you know, people were wanting to be healed and people were wanting um, to know more about what healed me and what I believed. And so I was out there doing speaking events and traveling and keeping up with people, like keep trying to deliver my work on social media, doing YouTube videos and just like not realizing that I was completely stressing myself out and one of the things I've written about in my first book about why I got cancer was because I was a people pleaser and I was there to, you know, and I had always put myself last and been there to please everything, everyone. And so what I didn't realize, I was kind of falling into that pattern again, but I didn't recognize the pattern because I thought, oh, I'm following my purpose. I'm out there speaking, talking, writing, creating YouTube videos. And, you know, and I thought, this is what I put, this is what I was sent back to do. What I didn't um, acknowledge was that I was starting to get very stressed out. And what would stress me out and pain me, I call it compassion fatigue now. And it's like I wanted everybody who was sick who would come to me. I wanted them all to heal. I wanted them to experience what I experienced. And I kind of made it my mission to try and rescue everybody. And so no matter how much I did, how many videos I put out, it just wasn't enough. Um, how many events I did, it wasn't enough. And, I, and so then... I went to, um, I took a break. Two friends of mine invited me to Costa Rica and they said, you know, you, you need a break from all your work. And I felt like I need to put a pause in my life. So I went to Costa Rica and um, we were at a, um, at, a, at a ceremony, like a plant, a, a plant ceremony 
with these Costa Rican, with these um, Amazonian shamans who were conducting it. It it was a controlled environment, but it was really beautiful, like um, uh, environment and very much in nature. So, So these shamans were conducting these rituals and there were like maybe 40 or 50 people as part of this ceremony. And it was an all night ceremony. And we were all lying on our mattresses in this huge, um, like a pagoda, cabana, I don't know what you would call it. Um, and it was like really huge where the sides were open. And it was an all night thing. And I don't know if it was like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., I was like falling asleep on my mattress while these shamans, these three shamans were walking around with their sage and their uh, drumbeat and, um, and chanting. And they were going around like clearing everybody's aura and energy. And then they stopped over me. And the main shaman just said to me that something to the effect of, um, uh, I would like you to get up and, and come to the front because I'm going to do some extra healing on you. So I was thinking, huh, isn't it interesting that he singled me out? It's like I need extra healing. And so I thought, I wonder why only me and no one else needs extra healing. Something must be wrong with me. Um, but I was intrigued. I wasn't really afraid or anything. I was just intrigued. I thought, how interesting. Um, so I went up to the front where he had this huge... He was sitting on this huge wicker chair. He sat on this wicker chair that had this big round back to it like a peacock. And, and I was sitting on the floor in front of him. And everybody else, like it was dark and nobody even noticed. You know, everybody else was zoned out on their mats or their mattresses. And it was just me at the front with the shaman and his um, two people, you know, his, his two apprentices. And uh, he started spraying me with stuff and clearing my energy. And then I think he used alcohol on some rags and actually had me wipe it over my head and, and even over my clothes and, and was just doing all these things. And then he said, he said, you have, he said, you're different. You've absorbed a hell of a lot more energy than anyone else in the room it's like you've been exposed to a lot more than anyone in this room. It's as though you have some kind of a mission, some kind of a big, some kind of a big mission, or you're here to do some kind of big work that has caused you to be exposed more, but you haven't learned to protect yourself. And he said, has something happened to you or are you doing something that's causing you to be out there and exposed to more people with, with issues and things. And so I told him, yeah, I, I had cancer and then I, um, I had a near death experience and then I recovered. And so I've been thrown into the public limelight. And so I told him this and he said, that's all wonderful. He said, you've been given a second chance and you need to go out there and share what's happened to you, but you need to do it in a way that you don't absorb everybody else's energy. And so he said, I am clearing you now. You leave out of here completely clear. You'll feel great. Your energy is clear. But you need to learn some tools so that you don't keep doing this again because you don't want to go back and be sick like you were the first time. 
So that was like, oh, wow, okay, I don't want to go and repeat that mistake. So that, that was what happened in that trip to Costa Rica. So interesting how that same pattern just took a different, took on a different costume. And yeah, it's, it's so wonderful that you were able to, to catch it and have that support. Now, for those, for those in our audience, I think a lot of people probably are already onto this term empath, but for those who, who might not, can you sort of help them understand what it means to be an empath? Yes, of course. Um, so, um, so what it means to be an empath is that, um, so let's say there's a spectrum of sensitivity. And so you have people who are sensitive and highly sensitive. So, and then you have, of course, people who are less sensitive on the lower end of the spectrum. And if you go all the way down uh, to the lowest end of the spectrum, there are uh, pr- very, very few people, like probably not people you meet on a daily basis who will be at the bottom end of probably what we call sociopaths, I guess. Right. But as you go up on the spectrum, most people are way higher, like people you meet with are somewhere in the midpoint of the spectrum, which is like normal levels of sem- sensitivity and empathy, empathy uh, and, you know, an ability to help people who need help and who are in pain. But then you start to go into higher levels of sensitivity where people are more sensitive to the needs of others. And the higher it goes, the more sensitive people are to the needs of others to the detriment of, the, uh, to the detriment of themselves. So the higher you go, so once you go beyond the center point of healthy, then you go higher and higher. The higher you go, the more it becomes that other people's issues, your sensitivity towards other be- people and other sentient beings and animals and so on may, may be so heightened that you take it on and even to the detriment of yourself. It's almost like you ignore your own needs, but the needs of others matter more to you. And so we call those highly sensitive people, but, it, but at the extreme end, we call them empaths because an empath literally absorbs the energy of other people and takes it on as though it's their own energy and they cannot even differentiate the energy of other people from their own. It's like you're a sponge and you think it's your own emotions and your own stuff and your own patterns, but it's not. It's other people's stuff. And you work through it like you go to all the self-help books and classes and all as if you have to heal those, those issues. But those issues and those energies aren't even yours. And you're wondering, why am I not able to heal them? It's because your only issue, so to speak, is that you're an empath and you don't realize that. But you think your issues are those issues that you've taken on of the other people. So that's kind of what it is to be an empath. And when I understood, so it was after that incident with the shaman, you know, and I realized that our old patterns, even when we've learned how to break them, they can take on a new costume or a new disguise um, and, and they can kind of catch us unaware as, as this had done. And 
for me, discovering that I am an empath, which somebody just said it to me really randomly, oh, I think you're an empath. And I was like, what? Um, and does it just mean I'm more empathic? And they said, no, it's more than that. You should look it up. You should study it. That's when, for me, a huge light bulb went off. So I want to say here that people say to me that um, I often say, and I have said that I don't like labels. We shouldn't be labeling people. Whereas when I discovered I was an empath, it was like my world blew open. So the difference between calling myself an empath and, uh, and using a label is that, um, to me, labeling boxes people in. It limits people. And it, uh, it's, it suppresses who they really are. So if, if a label makes you feel smaller, then it's a label. Don't, you know, don't buy into it. But if it liberates you and it helps you understand who you are and it frees you, then it's not a label. It's a description. It's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a character trait that, uh, and so I have embraced it being an empath because it actually freed me to understand this is who I am. And I can, once you understand what it is, it's like, okay, now I'm on my way to working with it and breaking this pattern. But on my journey um, of discovering that I'm an empath and I discovered the work of um, Dr. Judith Orlov and Elaine Aaron, and they, their work was amazing in helping me understand I'm an empath. But on my journey, this is the but I was getting into, I wanted to find empath leaders. Since I was already thrust into the limelight and everything, I thought, I need to, I, I thought, how do I navigate this world as somebody in the public eye and an empath? Because everybody's going to come to me. And what are the tools I need? And as I researched, like, how do you be in the public eye? How do you be a public figure and an empath? And as I researched, there were no tools, no tools that I found that could help me because the tools that I found were more about empaths being hermits, empaths cutting yourself off, creating more boundaries. It was almost like um, the only way was to hide. And I thought, I can't, this is a dichotomy. My purpose for being sent back was to share this message. It was to go out there and tell people. And yet by being out there, I am facing all the things, all the challenges that empaths could possibly face that are a challenge to them. Empaths are extremely sensitive to criticism. You cannot imagine the kind of pushback and, 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 um, and skepticism you get when you come out with a message like the one I had in Dying to Be Me. So that's why I had become so drained as well. Um, and so I thought, okay, I've got to figure out tools. And so I realized there was no toolbox out there. So I had to create my own tools. That was the first thing I discovered. There's no tools for empaths who are out in the public eye or who are public figures or in leadership roles or anything. So I had to make them. Then the second thing was I, I was like looking for mentors and I realized there was very, very few 
empaths who are actually in leadership roles. And I thought, holy moly, that's why our world is so messed up. Because empaths don't take on leadership roles. They can't deal with this world. They don't get elected into leadership roles. So no wonder our world is so messed up. So all of that for me created, like, it got my creative juices going. And it was like, this was the direction I started to go into with my new message and hence the birth of my new book. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of really wonderful tools in there, little mantras and affirmations, meditations, visualizations, and different self-care practices, which are fantastic. Um, one of the things I, I really thought was interesting um, is, is that you talk about spiritual communities and the, how they're needed and important. Um, however, there's a lot of sort of maybe, maybe it's because there's a lot of spiritual teaching that comes from a more old school, uh, masculine patriarchal kind of worldview. They're, they're product of their culture as well. These spiritual teachers and communities. Can you comment a little bit on that? And the way that a lot of those messages about going beyond the ego actually can mess, mess with empaths. Yes. So one of the things that I, during my exploration of being an empath and and like really going into myself and and everything, I realized that um, I have or had what one could call a repressed ego, particularly while growing up and before the near-death experience. But here's the other piece is that I was always someone who, I considered and other people considered very spiritual. I used to go to all the conventional spiritual teachings and classes and and everything. So I always learned that we have to transcend the ego. The ego is bad. We have to suppress the ego. Um, In order to to evolve, we, we have to transcend the ego. And so I used to really suppress my ego. And, and so I, um, so every time I had needs or desires or wanted to speak up or speak out, I would say, no, that's my ego. That's my ego wanting this. So I would tame that ego. Ego was bad to the point that I would make myself invisible. Um, But here, there are so many other things that I learned. Like another one, I always learned that it's better to give than to receive. So I was a giver. I never learned to receive. I never allowed myself to receive. I felt it was selfish to receive. So I would give and give and give of myself easily to the point of becoming drained. Never, ever allowed myself to receive because, you know, it is always better to give than to receive. Um, I always felt I had to be of service to others. And so I laid myself out to be of service to the point of being a doormat. I felt I was a very spiritual being that was someone who wanted to make sure that I had a really good afterlife that I, you know, that I didn't want any bad karma after I died. And, and, and so I did everything I could to create good karma. And it was only when I actually died, did I realize, Oh my gosh, you haven't lived your life fully. You're actually, supposed to be all that you can be 
and you're you're supposed to be able to receive you're supposed to love yourself because what i learned when i died is that i am also an expression or a facet of the divine or of god as much as everyone else as much as all these people that i'm serving because another message that i would always get from my spiritual teachings is that we have to treat everybody else as though they are God. We have to see God in everybody's eyes, which I still do. And I still love that message, but we also have to see God in our own eyes. We mustn't forget that. It's not seeing God in everyone at the detriment of ourselves. So this is the message I have for empaths that traditional spiritual teachings may not work for you unless you introduce the part about the importance of self-love, the importance of having an e a strong ego. It doesn't make you egotistical, which is a completely different thing. And the importance of learning to receive. Because what I realized is that all those spiritual messages the, the conventional ones, they're well-meaning and they're great. And when you look at the world outside, you kind of wish the people out there who you're listening to in mainstream media and all, you kind of wish they would take those messages on board. But And the, those messages are targeted at them. But here's the thing. You go to a spiritual class, you go to any kind of a ashram or a spiritual class, how many of those people are you going to see in a spiritual gathering? Probably none. So those messages are not even falling on the ears of the people who need to hear it. Who are the people that are going to spiritual classes? Probably the empaths. So the empaths are going to the spiritual classes, the empaths who are already people who are naturally givers because they feel everybody's energies, who are naturally good listeners because they feel everybody's, uh, because they, they want to help everyone. They're rescuers. They want to help everyone out of their problems. Empaths are going to these spiritual teachings and then empaths are being told that, oh, it's better to give than to receive. Oh, you have to suppress your ego. For empaths, that is the wrong message. That message needs to go to people who are not empaths, who are more on the other end of the, of the spectrum, the ones, the louder voices, the more ruthless among us who are out there, you know, trying to run the world and out there trying to gain power over everyone. Those messages are for them, but those people aren't listening. To, they, they're not attending those kinds of classes or groups. So my message to empaths is that if you identify as an empath, if you are somebody who feels other people's emotions, if you are someone who innately wants to help the world, if you are someone who can't feel good unless other people are helped, if you are someone who needs to feed the hungry, then you, we need you in this world. We need you to be empowered. We need you to take care of yourself and learn to receive and build a healthier ego so that you can step into leadership positions and help this world. You need an opposite message. Yes, wonderful. And I really like the analogy used with the two dials. There's the, the ego dial and the conscious awareness dial. 
an empath, yes. the conscious awareness dial, that sensitivity is already cranked to full steam and the ego dial is turned right down. And so it's finding that balance. And that's such a nice image for tweaking and finding that right balance in our lives. Yes, I, I had to come up with an analogy. I had to think of something that people would get. And so I thought, okay, the, um, and, and so that was a fun one. So basically, if you imagine you're born with two dials, um, like built into you, maybe one dial and is just built into each hand. And so what you want is your ego dial cranked up all the way to 10. And these dials go from zero to 10. And conscious awareness dial, you want that cranked up from zero to 10. So ego is awareness of self, awareness of our own needs, awareness of, of um, our own desires. Conscious awareness is awareness of everybody else and, uh, and the state of the planet, other people, our family, our friends. So if your ego dial is dialed all the way down to zero, you've turned it down to zero because the messages you're getting is ego is bad. You've got to transcend the ego. It's negative to have a strong ego. So you turn your ego dial all the way down and all your spiritual messages are telling you better to give than to receive. And you have to do everything for free and you have to help everybody and be of service. So your conscious awareness dial is at 10 you become completely imbalanced where all you do is serve everyone else and you become and you neglect yourself completely. That is who I was and that is why I got sick. That is why I drained and deteriorated to the point of getting cancer. And even when I was sick, I worried more about other people than me. Even when people wanted to help me, I was like, no, 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 don't go out of your way. I don't want you to take the trouble. I was still in that state of it's better to give than to receive. It didn't take my illness to heal me of that, that feeling of I have to keep giving, I can't receive. It wasn't the illness, it was death that healed me. It actually took death for me to realize, oh my God, I'm an expression of God. I am supposed to receive as well. So what I tell people is if you can think in terms of having those two dials, the idea is not about turning down the ego dial. It's about turning up the conscious awareness dial. So you need a conscious awareness dial at 10, so you're aware of everything, and an ego dial at 10 so that you take care of your own needs, so that you can be strong and powerful and energetic, so that you can fulfill whatever it is you want to with the conscious awareness dial at 10. If people were at 10-10 and took on leadership roles, we would resolve world hunger in five minutes. Yeah, that's so great. <laughs> I, you know, I really like um, you, you shared the idea about the healing sanctuary, this room where people oh, go yes. in this beautiful environment. And can you tell us, yes. can you share with our audience this idea? I really love that. It's a, a wonderful of reflection. Of course. I yes, I, uh, I will. And actually, just one thing I wanted to mention about the dials, I'm just thinking of it, that yeah. I just wanted to mention, if somebody had their ego dial turned to 10 and their conscious awareness at zero, that's what makes them egotistical. And that is what we currently see a lot of in our world today, particularly in our leadership positions, 
because um, currently we value traits like ruthlessness and brute force and competition. And so people who really turn down the conscious awareness dial and think that I just have to be ruthless and get to the top and not worry about anyone else. Those are the ones that are holding the leadership positions for the most part in our world today. So the idea is really to help people turn that conscious awareness dial to 10. So that's just what I wanted to mention. And the sanctuary is my vision of what I wish that we would have instead of hospitals of the future. Um, So like today, if somebody gets diagnosed with an illness and they go to a hospital, the first thing they feel is fear because the first thing is that you have a doctor in a white coat telling you like, this is what you've got going on. This is what we're going to do. We're going to run these tests. This is the treatment and this is, and your chances of survival are X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. And so you get into this feeling of fear. Now, fear is, um, it actually contributes to your illness. What you want to do is the minute somebody is feeling any symptoms, any physical symptoms, it means they are feeling things like fear, stress, anger, rage, um, resentment. These are the kinds of things on an ongoing, for an ongoing period of time that causes you to feel, to, to, to develop physical symptoms, um, these kinds of strong emotions. So we're not going to talk about things like physical injury. I still believe you might need traditional hospitals for physical injury. So there's physical injury, there's too much maybe toxic um, input, which could be toxins and poisons and all. That's another area. But those two areas make up a very small percentage of why people go into a hospital or why or, or people's physical ailments. They're very small, injury and, um, and poisons and toxics, okay? So I think the biggest reason people, and, and oh, and poisons and toxins also covers things like really poor diet and smoking and all of that. I think one of the biggest reasons that people get ill is because of, um, of things like stress, emotions, um, having a life that they don't like and having no passion for life, having no purpose for living, uh, all these kinds of reasons. So if somebody had um, an illness, what I would do if it were up to me, a hospital would have them, um, I mean, uh, I, I would call it a sanctuary. I wouldn't even call it a hospital. They would enter somewhere that was very, very beautiful. It would not be fear inducing. It would be very beautiful. It would look like a sanctuary or a retreat or a resort. The people who would talk to them and deal with them would actually be wearing fun clothes like jeans and t-shirts and, and, and the walls would have art and there would be plush sofas. And God knows our medical, um, our, our medical industry has enough funds to create this kind of thing. They really do. They make a boatload of money. But for me, it would be something much more beautiful and calming. And then instead of getting a battery of tests the way that it's done conventionally, 
the kind of um, technology that I would love to see would be so different. It would be technology, instead of focusing on looking for disease, it would be technology to help you to focus and increase wellness. I would rather see funding going towards developing, uh, researching and developing technology that instead of constantly focusing on finding or doing earlier and earlier detection of disease, it would be more like helping to people to expand their life force energy, increase wellness, helping people to figure out why they got this disease in the first place. What is it in their life that's causing it? What in their life is causing them to feel depleted or rage or anger or hurt or whatever it is? And I would even almost go so far as to, I mean, I would love to see funding towards research to create devices that could measure life force energy. And if I was a um, technician operating one of those and dealing with somebody who was unwell in front of me, they would be connected to a device that would measure their life force energy. And then I would help them to go through different situations in their life. I would say, okay, so how do you feel when you're at work, when you're at place of work? And then this device would measure their energy and tell me that, that would show me that their energy has dropped drastically. And I'd be like, okay, there's a clue of why they're sick. And then I would say, how about your relationship right now? What's the state of your relationship? And them just thinking about it would register on the device and the device would tell me, oh my gosh, look at their, their energy might go right down or it might, their energy might shoot right back up. So then I would help them devise a plan of these are the things that are bringing your energy up. These are the things that are bringing your energy down. Let's wor now work with some coaching on how you can decrease these things in your life and have less of them and increase the things that increase your life force energy. That's kind of the route I would go if I was dealing with healthcare, not the conventional stuff that we have now. That's archaic what they do now, like chopping people up and removing stuff. <laughs> and you know from firsthand experience for sure. Yes, and probably, and the thing is, I know I'm supposed to be cautious about saying things like that, but I, <laughs> I can't help myself because I know from what happened to me. I mean, I, I was on the other side. I know what made me sick. I know it for me. I don't want to make a blanket statement for everybody because I don't want anyone coming after me, but but I know for me, I am 110% sure that it was my state of being that caused me to actually have cancer to the point of end stage cancer. It was because I did not love myself. I did not know I was supposed to love myself. I did not know how to receive love. Um, so, you know, I, I know that's what it was for me. I was a doormat. I took care of everybody but me. Yeah. You point a lot to these, uh, use the word doormat and uh, people pleaser it, as this is kind of the shadow side of, of being empathic is, is becoming a doormat or being over, over anxious about people pleasing is what are the, what are the signs for people to look out for the sort of red flags where they can stop and say, okay, I'm kind of 
I'm going overboard here with my empathic tendencies. So, um, so many. So one is, are you feeling fatigue? Are you starting to feel tired when people are coming to you with problems or when you're reading stuff on the news all the time, you know? And so the, these are the signs you're really getting over-involved. Are you starting to feel anger and rage towards people that are maybe causing hurt to other people? Are you feeling that rage in your own body? Are you feeling physical symptoms in your own body? Um, are you feeling like you need a lot of sleep? Uh, you know, as, so if you are an empath and you are feeling all these kinds of emotions, then it means that you've taken on too much. There's just too much input in your energy field and you have to now start focusing on taking care of yourself. You have to. Um, one of the things for empaths to watch out for is because you feel other people's energies and you feel them so strongly, you have this strong desire to help them. If, so if somebody is struggling, you have this strong desire to help them because you want them to energetically feel good because you can feel their energy when they feel bad. And so you want to feel their energy when they feel good. So it's almost like you feel like it's your own energy. So you want them to feel so you want them to feel good really badly. So you become a rescuer, even when people don't ask for it. So check yourself. Are you constantly rescuing people? So it's good for empaths to keep checking themselves. And I also tell empaths that whether your body is asking for it or your psyche is asking for it, it's really important if you are an empath to actually develop daily practices of self-care and self-nourishment, whether it's um, taking time out every day just to do stuff for yourself, like one hour a day of just to nourish yourself, take care of yourself, slow down, um, you know, be more mindful about eating stuff that you really uh, that really nourishes your body and really spend time with taking care of yourself. Empaths tend to feel guilty taking care of themselves because they feel, oh, there's so much more I could be doing for this person or that person needs me. But no, you need to do this for yourself. Um, so it's very important for an empath to actually create a routine or a regime where they do something for themselves every day that is a, that is a form of self-care. Another couple of things that they can do is they can cut down on watching the news and mainstream media. Um, you need to take like an information fast, maybe one day a week if you can, of no media. That would be really helpful. And if you're going to read, read an actual book not on, your, not on your iPad because then you'll get tempted to flick into your social media. So I like to read actual physical books. Um, I like to, the other thing for empaths that's really great for them is to go out in nature. Nature isn't a great equalizer because nature does not discriminate and nature has its own rhythm because it's connected to the universe and it's connected to the earth. Nature is everything. It's the universe and it's earth. And so when you're out in nature, if you're standing barefoot, whether it's in the sand or you put your feet in the water, in the ocean or on grass or anything, 
what you're doing is you are harmonizing yourself with the heartbeat of nature. And that's a really good cleanser, really fast, really efficient, and really good because nature is always connected to above and below, always. So if you want to stay connected to above and below, just get out in nature. The other thing to watch out for with empaths is because you're so impacted by other people um, and the energies of other people is you have to remember that you as an empath are actually extremely intuitive. You are literally a sixth sensory being. Um, so remember that you are sixth sensory and don't deny that sixth sense. Um, you, your sixth sense is actually very powerful. And if you don't realize it yet, it's because you haven't explored it. But empaths have a very powerful sixth sense. When they lose themselves and when they feel unplugged and they feel all those things, what it means is that you have shut off your sixth sense. Your sixth sense is your connection through the inside. You know, it's your connection, your internal connection to the universe. It's your connection to your higher self. Um, when an empath gives more of their attention to the outer world and shuts off their connection to the inner world, that's when they lose themselves. And that's what I was doing when I was giving all my attention to all the people who wanted to be healed, who wanted more energy, who wanted help, who was suffering. When we do that and we give all our attention to the outside world, and when we forget that, oh, I have this constant feed of attention, uh, of, um, uh, of energy coming from my inner world, and we forget it and we cut it off, that's when we start to lose energy. So we have to do something every day that reminds us that we are connected to our inner world, whether it's, again, going out in nature, whether it's meditating, because when you start connecting to your inner world, you get a lot of downloads. You get your instructions from your higher self as to what your purpose is and how to manage your life without being depleted. But when you ignore that and you take your instructions from there, outside, that's when you become depleted. That's the biggest message I have for empaths. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And anybody who's empathic, I identify as somewhere on the cusp maybe of each highly sensitive and empathic. Anybody who's in that place knows how much, how difficult it can feel to stop being pulled out there and actually carve out that time for ourselves. But it is really important, isn't it? Yes, extremely important. That is your biggest job. You know, we think our biggest job is to go out there and heal the world. No, empaths do that without even thinking by default to the point of their detriment. No, your biggest job, because it's your biggest challenge, is to go inward and take care of yourself and listen to your higher self and treat that as the authoritative voice, not the ones coming at you from the outside. Yes, yes. Um, now we've got, I've got one more question for you before we go into our audience questions. So audience, I see they've been rolling in, but if you didn't know, you can put in your questions in the Q&A tab on Zoom here and we'll get to as many as we can. I just wanted to ask you about Wayne Dyer and the role that he played in your life. 
Oh, he was, um, he, he was incredible. I believe that it was meant to be. It was part of my dharma, our dharma. Um, so he discovered my story online. Somebody actually shared my story. I had put out my story not even using my, my full name. It was Anita M's NDE. And it was on a near-death experience website. And because... Um, I had got some attention for what had happened to me. I didn't really enjoy that attention in the beginning because it was mostly people in the medical environment were wanting to know, they were wanting to know what happened and they were like, oh, it was your mind, you know, it happens when you're dying, the dying brain. And so I was dealing with very much the skeptical um, medical type of people. So I thought, I really don't want to talk about it or make it public that I had this experience. So I put it on a website and, and just um, titled it Anita M's NDE. So Anita M's near-death experience. And I felt I've set the story free and now I'm just going to get on with living my life. And my life had nothing to do with the cancer and the near-death experience. I started doing other stuff. Um, I, I started coaching in a different way. I did what I call cultural coaching. I didn't even tell my clients I had cancer or had a near-death experience. So I was like, just went off living my life. That story though, that my story, which I put on this near-death experience website, I didn't realize it went viral and somebody sent it to Wayne Dyer. And when Wayne Dyer read it, so I was based in Hong Kong and it happened to me in Hong Kong. Wayne Dyer is based in, in Maui, in Hawaii. He gets this story, um, somebody sends it to him and he calls up Hay House and he says to Hay House, uh, to, to the head of Hay House, he says to Reed that um, somebody sent me this story and, and we need to publish, we need to make this, uh, ask this woman to write a book and we, Hay House, need to publish it. So he asked them to track me down. And so it was really interesting because I was not ready to share that story. And I, and then not publicly. And one day out of the blue, a friend of mine who has a healing um, sanctuary, who has a healing um, center, she said to me, will you come and speak at my healing center um, to, will, will you speak at my healing center and share that story of what happened to you? And I said, you know, I don't really share it publicly. And she said, oh, you don't understand. My um, clients, they would love to hear it. They need to hear something like that to inspire them. They're all into this stuff. They would be all over it. So I said, okay. So I go to a healing center and she has about 50 or 60 people, in audience in this, in this room. And, um, and they're all sitting there and I share my story. And when I share my story, I had the most beautiful reaction from them, like really beautiful reaction. And I told them what happened on the other side and how I healed. And they all like were, some of them were crying. And, and when I was finished, they wanted to hug me and they said, oh, I'm so happy you shared that. And I so relate to what you're saying. And, and yes, I feel we're all so much more powerful than we've led, been led to believe. So I was really moved by their reaction. I had a complete shift and I thought, 
huh, maybe I'm supposed to be sharing my story, but to the right audience, not to the medical and so on, but to a different audience who are hungry for stuff that's not mainstream. And so, um, because I was so inexperienced, I was not a speaker, I had no book out. So I thought, wow, so there is an audience that's not mainstream that wants to hear this. So um, literally the day that I had that epiphany, I am supposed to be sharing it. There are people hungry for this. The next day I got an email from Hay House saying, Wayne Dyer has discovered your story and asked us to track you down and we'd like you to write a book. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. I started crying. Anyway, fast forward, um, when I met Wayne Dyer and we were touring, we toured for four years. It was amazing. He put me on the map and I said, and then he said to me out of the blue, he goes, do you know how hard it was to track you down? And I said, what do you mean? He said, it took Hay House five months to track you down because um, you didn't have your full name or email address or anything on the story. They had to Google you and put in clues and stuff. It took them five months. And I said, wow, I didn't realize it took them five months because the day they found me, was the day I was ready to share my story publicly. So I feel it was meant to happen. It's like the, the world gives us what we need when we're ready for it. So it was just, yeah, mm-hmm. incredible. And then I traveled with him for four years and, and it was a real shock when he passed away. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing. But I still feel him. You're welcome. I still feel him around, especially when yes. I'm speaking. Yeah. 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 He was a wonderful man. I, I never met him, but uh, read a lot of his work and listened to a lot of his talks and of course heard about you through him as well. So I'm grateful for, for all yeah. that happening. Uh, we've got an interesting question here. Thanks everybody for sending in your questions from Raman. He asks, um, is it possible to argue that this need to want to help people or to rescue them, quote unquote, from their problems is operating from a place of ego, i.e. adopting a savior complex. Yes, it is. That's a very good observation. And it absolutely is possible that it is operating from a place of ego, this need to actually save people when they don't even ask for it. And it's also comes, I think, from a place of... um, needing to be needed and so and I'm glad you asked that because one of the things that I do get into in you know in in deeper conversations and and all is to actually ask yourself when you are helping people when you are out there doing stuff for people and being there for people why are you doing it what is the motive behind you doing it are you doing it from the joy of your heart because I have so much to give and I want everybody to share in this. And that's the healthy reason for doing it. Um, Or are you doing it because you don't want to disappoint them? You want to win their approval or you want to be seen, recognized. So it's, I'm really great. Glad you asked that because um, it, it very possibly is. Yes. Right. Okay. So is it coming from my healthy, integrated, energized sense of self or from this place of yes. neediness? And, right. Okay. That's a great distinction. And a, 
And a simple way that I often say this is I, I say, is it coming from love or fear? And when I mean, when I say fear, is it a fear of not having approval? Is it a fear of not being liked? Is it a fear of, you know, are you helping them? Are you being out there? Is it a fear, uh, you know, because you want to be seen, you want to be recognized, you want their approval? Or is it from a place of love where I genuinely love that person and want to see them healthy and happy? Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Preet asks, did you find that the near-death experience made you more sensitive? You know, um, that's a good question. And I sometimes ask myself that because what I, I go back and forth on is, is it that I was always sensitive but did not recognize it, which is why it got to the point where I got so sick? I did not recognize that this is what I'm doing. I'm depleted because I have compassion fatigue, because I have a repressed ego, because I'm so sensitive to the needs of other people. I did not have that knowledge and that awareness. And, and today I know that if I knew uh, all this and if I understood sensitivity, if I understood about being an empath, I would not have got sick in the first place. So um, what I have today is more of an awareness of being sensitive I don't know if I'm actually more sensitive or just more aware I'm sensitive, but it's a good right. question. Right. Um, thank you, Preet. The next question is from Debbie. She says, thank you for sharing some techniques, i.e. nature, eating healthily. How do you protect yourself when you're out in the world, especially during this time in our world where there's so much anger, rage, depression, et cetera? And uh, another very, very good question. So I have different ways of um, protecting myself, but what I, but the way I view it, so here's the first thing I want you to do is, I want you to shift the way you look at it. And so the, again, the traditional or conventional way that people teach empaths or people, what, what people pleasers and doormats and all are taught is that you need boundaries. You need to protect yourself. You need a shield. You need a wall. You need, you need stuff like that. So what I want you to do is I want you to shift your thinking and think in terms of, I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to push those people away, like with an electric fence or a boundary or a wall. I'm not saying that that I need to protect myself from them. But what I need to do is to raise my life force energy to raise, because what happens is we all have a life force energy. We all do. It's life force energy is coursing through us. It's around us. It's, um, a, you know, it's, it's what we can call, what we call our aura. It's what we call our chi, our prana. And and some of us have stronger life force energy than others. What makes life force energy stronger? It's stronger when you are feeling healthy, happy, joyful, when you eat nourishing food, um, when you feel good, your life force energy is stronger. When you are someone who's giving and giving and giving of your energy and not receiving and you have a repressed ego and you feel you're unimportant and unworthy, then your life force energy becomes very repressed. So what I tell people is work on strengthening your life force energy. 
the stronger your life force energy, the less you actually have to worry about protecting yourself. Because what happens is as your life force energy gets stronger and stronger, anybody that enters your energy field becomes uplifted even without you saying anything just by being in your energy field. And, but the ways with which to strengthen your energy field, those are the things that you want to work on. So you don't want to focus on how do I create a boundary to protect me from other people. It's more so, so this is what I mean about the shift in thinking. Don't think, how do I create a boundary to protect myself from other people? Instead, think, how can I strengthen my energy field? And that's the question you have to keep asking yourself. And if strengthening your energy field for you, if it means taking time out from the media so you're not faced with things that anger you for a while, while you build up your energy field, if it means not seeing people for a little while, but remember you're doing it because you're, you, you want time out to strengthen your energy field. And then it's like, what else strengthens my energy field? Oh, listening to music. Oh, getting into my art. Do whatever it takes to strengthen your energy field. Um, I can go on about this because what you also want is you want energy equity or energy reserves because here's another mistake that empaths make. You feel yucky, you feel sick, you feel awful. That means you have depleted energy field. Then you do just enough, like you, you go to bed, it, it, it manifests as a cold or a flu. You go to bed, you kick the flu, and so you're feeling just fine enough to start going and operating in the world again. And so when you're functioning like that with no energy equity, like the littlest things knock you down again. And when you're functioning at that level, that's when you feel, I need boundaries, I need walls, I need electric fences, I need that to protect myself from the world. But when you have energy equity, you stop thinking like that because things don't knock you down. But you may need to have your little boundary or electric fence for a little while while you build that equity, but you have to think in terms of, I'm doing this to build the equity. I don't want to spend the rest of my life having boundaries and electrical fences, because once I have that energy equity, I am living from a place of, of expansion and joy and love and sharing that with everybody. Yes, yes, perfect. Now we're very right that was a long winded. Yeah. Oh, no, but Sorry. it's a really good one because there's a lot of nuance to that and just shift, like you said, just shifting that perspective to building your energy instead of needing to protect yourself from everything. That's really yeah. awesome. Now we're right at our time, Anita. This is such a good question. I'm so glad it got asked. And I know you you probably have to get going, but if you could just make a quick comment, this is from Randy. And he says, being a super sensitive male. I find there's a huge stigma regarding the topic of highly sensitive people. What recommendations do you have for highly sensitive men who are struggling dealing with low sensitive people, especially because most male roles are in aggressive industries such as construction? 
Oh, I love that question. Oh my gosh, Randy. Um, I'm sending you a big virtual hug right now, yeah, especially for, yeah, for having the courage to say that. Because one of the first things I even write in my book, Sensitive is the New Strong, it's harder for men than women because there is the stigma towards men. This is what we have to change in the world. And I want to tell you, Randy, if you were face to face, I would like, literally, I would be holding you and I would be saying to you, Randy, you are the future of the male species. You are what we need for our evolution. If only you knew how important people like you are. You are so valuable because, you know, um, women who are sensitive are, of course, super important because the problem is in the past, historically, when women wanted to succeed and take on leadership roles, they had to become more like men, which is actually part of the problem, not the solution. Um, and, and, and men who were sensitive had to suppress their sensitivity. And men grow up hearing things like boys don't cry or man up or grow a thicker skin and stuff like that. And you're told that if you want to succeed in the world, you can't be so sensitive. Everybody gets told that, but men more than women. Whereas if we allow that to continue to perpetuate, if we allow that, the world we're going to see is a world that we don't want to live in. In fact, we may not have a world. And I'll be honest with you, as far as my thoughts go, um, I feel that COVID was like a divine intervention because the way the world was going, we couldn't keep going the way we were going. Think about it. Governments were more interested in killing each other, killing other countries and other people than they were in feeding each other. All our money and resources were being used for governments to develop bigger and bigger nuclear weapons instead of feeding the world. Um, we were at the brink of our own extinction. And sensitivity needs to be seen as the new strength if we want to continue to evolve. This is the evolution of the new human. Randy, you are part of the evolution of the new male. And so you are so valuable. You need to shout it from the rooftops. That's what I would say. Don't let those guys get, you, get to you. Know inside you that you are part of the future. They're part of a dying paradigm. They are so last century, <laughs> the uh -huh. ones that make you feel that you're oversensitive. Yes. So that's what I want said. you to know. Beautifully said. Thank you, Anita, so much. Uh, and that's a great way to finish. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today and for all the work that you're doing. Thank you. They, they were amazing questions. I loved answering them and the time flew by so fast. Yes, it did. It did. And uh, anybody who's interested in Anita's newest book, Sensitive is the New Strong, The Power of Empaths in an Increasingly Harsh World, or any of her other books, can buy them at our website, banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. We ship anywhere in the world. Support your local independent bookstore. And Anita, thank you so much. All the best in everything you're doing. Thank you so much. And I want to tell everyone, buy it from Banyan. Please support, support the uh, local businesses. So please order your books from Banyan. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.
Have a wonderful day and all the best to everyone out there. Thank you. You have been listening to In Conversation, a podcast with Banyan Books and Sound. <laughs>